Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the lion's den, and I've got a guy here that, Steve, I want to say I got to know you probably, I met you at the Conclave, what, two, three years ago? Two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. I just liked him. I'm like, I like this dude. I mean, first off, he's got a kick-ass first name, but I mean. Steve Squared Podcast right now. I know, yeah. And, uh. I'm so glad to have you on, Steve Van Deest. It's fun. Welcome. About that time is when I started listening to the podcast, and I met a bunch of guys two and a half years ago. It's funny how I came across Holy Smokes. Um, My wife and I do a lot of marriage coaching in town, and we were doing it for our church in Greenwood Village, and they sent me to some monthly, quarterly, whatever it was, luncheon with a bunch of other churches, Catholic churches, evangelical churches, and there's some nuns there, some priests in their, their get, get outs and a bunch of hipster pastors in their skinny jeans and flannels. And I'm in there going, all right, I might be the only non-clergy guy in here full time. And I sit next to this guy, Anthony Hatzenberger or something like that. Yeah. yeah. You know him? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm sitting next to him. His wife's there. My wife wasn't. And only other non-clergy guy in the room. We start talking and we start somehow getting into the world of cigars. And he goes, you got to check out this page called Holy Smokes. And he invites me right there. And um, I've yet to see the guy ever again in my life. I haven't seen him in years. Okay. So he may years. have been active, but he brought me in. So I'm at home and on Facebook and I'm like, oh, Holy Smokes. Kind of, I knew the rules. And I'm like, it's kind of dumb. Just posting pictures of yourself, smoking cigars. And then I started seeing these other communities, kind of people post and they're like, huh. Someone posted on the, on the main page about Castle Rock. I'm like, that's not far. I live in South Denver. And I come down. There's a blizzard of two years ago in March. I drive down to, to the uh, Smoker Friendly. And I pull in right at noon. I'm pretty punctual. And I walk in. And there's 25 people in this lounge. Hardly a chair. I'm thinking, am I in the right spot? Because no one else is. I kind of sit there in the corner. And no one else is walking in. I'm thinking, it can't be the right spot. If it starts at noon, why is there nobody else kind of rolling in with me? And I, I lean over to this gentleman, Big Al, and I go, is this Holy Smokes? And he goes, yeah. And then he, he introduces me to a bunch of people. Second person I meet is Demetrius. And they're like, oh, yeah, there's some food over there in the corner and drink and sit down. And I'm still just kind of getting a feel for it. <laughs> I didn't even have the nerve to ask, does this start at noon? Because if you know the Castle Rock group, it says it starts at noon. early because seats are limited sometimes. So the, the OGs roll in about 10.30. Yeah. And uh, I stayed for about an hour and 15 minutes. Smoked a cigar and left. Came back next time I went to Big Al's place at uh, Bear's Den. Yeah. And sat next to Demetrius and is not a huge talker. But if you get him one-on-one and I got to hear his heart and I got to hear the heart and soul of Holy Smokes. And I was hooked. It was done. And um, <laughs> I remember about the third or fourth time I came and I asked these guys and do you guys have jobs? You're all here sitting on Fridays. And like, no, do you? You're here. And so it was really funny. And then I started finding out the secret rules of, yeah, 1030, 11 a.m. Today I showed up up in Castle Rock and I showed up at 11 and there was already 15 guys there. All the chairs were virtually gone. So it's kind of combat smoking. (laughs) Where'd you grow up, Steve? Southern California, a Dutch dairy Christian reformed little community outside of Long Beach and didn't grow up with cows. Uh, It's called Lakewood, California. Okay. Lakewood, Bellflower, Cerritos, ton of dairies at the time. Yeah. I would have said probably until my mid thirties, grandpa Corny or Casey 
was a dairyman. Yet I grew up all those days, right down the street was the main milk producing plant. We didn't just milk cows, but they also produced milk and sold it all over Southern California. And, and the only place that I knew of was this drive-in dairies. Back in Southern California in the 70s, yeah, mostly the 70s, instead of driving to a 7-Eleven, getting out of your car, going inside and getting some milk and eggs and whatever it was, or a small grocery store, you just drive in. And a couple teenagers working at the local school or local Christian school uh, that my grandpa would hire, you'd roll down your window and say, I'll have some eggs, some milk, chips, bread. They put it in your car, you pay them cash, and you drive out. <laughs> and that's what I knew, grandpa. And I knew the dairy was about 30 miles away in Riverside. But it wasn't until I was in my mid-30s when I'm kind of doing some soul work and deeper work in my own life going, wait, he was an entrepreneur. And he had stuff going all over, but he was just grandpa. He did everything the hard way, stoic Dutchman. So Southern California was home, college on the Central Coast, got a nerd degree, met my wife in Brazil after my junior year in college. She was getting a, a better degree than me, um, an international business degree. She's Latin. And we fell in love in Brazil and then uh, finished our senior years and got married. Where'd you go to school? Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. So I got a degree in math and computer science. Why? Because at Christian schools growing up, um, if you're good at math and science, you become an engineer. And I walked into Cal Poly being a mechanical engineer, took calculus, thermodynamics, drafting, and Spanish. I dropped Spanish the first day when she says, you're going to have to do a lot of work outside the classroom. I'm like, nope. So I dropped that and I picked up something. Drafting was helpful. It helped me to, to make uh, capital letters. That's all I remember from drafting. And I took calculus, never got anything lower than a B plus. It was in band in high school. And I took Flunk and Farrell. Class started with 45 kids. By the time finals rolled around, there was 15 of us. He failed all of us. Wow. And um, I retook it. And uh, thermodynamics was okay. It was a lab. I was putting myself through school. So labs were tough. I'm like, we're not getting, I'm not getting credit for this. This is like extra homework. And um, I was working a ton already at a restaurant. And then my second quarter, retook calculus. And I didn't get a problem wrong the whole semester. And the professor pulled me aside into his office and said, why aren't you a math major? I'm like, I don't know. I'm supposed to be a mechanical engineer. That's what science and physics kids do. Yeah. And so I changed to math. And computer science was in the dark days. We were doing like Pascal and C++. And I programmed mostly in a, in a military language called ADA. None of it was fun. Didn't make cool games. Didn't make cool apps. We were just programming in the back. And so I think initially I was like, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a, um, a mathematician. I'm going to be a professor. And soon through the degree, I was like, I might just teach math. This is really hard. Some of the smartest people on planet earth. So yeah, made it through, but fell in love with my wife, bumped into a ministry there, a college ministry that terrified me. They just experienced life different. They were discipling people and sharing their faith. How did they terrify you? I had never seen that growing up in the church or a Christian school. People sharing their faith, sitting down, talking about the Bible together. I saw youth group stuff, and that's kind of when I started walking with the Lord. In 1985, Billy Graham rolled into Anaheim Stadium. I was 14 or 15 years old, and my dad made me go. My mom was singing in the big choir they used to have in those big stadium events. And I, I roamed Anaheim Stadium seeing where are the cute girls? And then I finally sat down to my dad next to my dad and I was just kind of tuned out. 
And I'd been in youth group and church and Christian school the whole time. But a gentleman, two seats to the left of me, brown skinned, I can't remember if he's Indian or Latino, leans over to me at the very beginning. He goes, hey, you born again? I'm like, what do you mean? You're a 14-year-old punk. And he explained to me, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've done that. But the Holy Spirit used that moment. It caught my attention when Dr. Graham spoke. And when they had the the call to say, do you want to come on the field to accept Christ? I kind of tug on my dad's shoulder. And we we didn't have these conversations at home. I think in the Dutch dairy culture, it was like we send them to church, we send them to school, and the teachers and the youth pastors have their work. And um, so that's when I came to faith, made a personal decision. And it wasn't shortly thereafter, I threw up two weeks in a row in church about a year later from being hung over. My sophomore year in high school, my church hired a non-Dutch person, non-seminary person. He happened to be a janitor before he was a youth pastor at another little local community church. And we took a risk on him. And Jim Plante changed my life, taught Mm. me to walk with Jesus. How so? It was personal. The word was real. And he was young. I don't know if he's young, but... He didn't teach it the way that the Christian school and the church was teaching it. It was just non-traditional. He taught a relationship with the Lord that felt alive to me. And it just made sense. And so for a kid that's probably a performer, did I probably just turn it into a performance? But it was the first time I understood to walk with Jesus. Did I still turn it into a lot of performance? Yeah. But God used much farther down the journey to break that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so Cal Poly, my wife went to University of Texas, fell in love we finished college, moved to Southern California. We were both teachers and I was teacher at my alum. So back in the school, but teachers didn't get me because now I'm coming back from learning to share my faith, discipling people, fall in love with the word. And, and these people love the Lord, but it was just a different vibe in a Dutch Christian reform school. And so I felt lonely. Hmm. It was the non-Dutch teachers I'd sit with at lunch, not the ones that I knew that taught me four years prior. And I, th- I felt a little ostracized. And so right away, we knew we wanted to go into full-time ministry. And so we jumped on board with Camps Crusade for Christ. I think it's crew now. And of all places, they dropped us in Boulder, Colorado. I had no idea. Really? Uh-huh. A kid from Southern California, a girl from Texas. They dropped us into a different region, a great a new member of Holy Smokes, Eric Swanson. He pulled into the Florida. We were going through staff training. He goes, I want this couple to be in Boulder. And he pulled the coup on two different regions. I had no idea. People were, were gnashing in teeth. You got Boulder, Colorado. I didn't know what it was. I'd never been there. And um, so we landed just about a month after the miracle in Michigan. And I'm like, I'm going to a football school. And uh, Boulder was everything special back in the early 90s. And um, it was electric. It was electric. Football was electric. The culture was electric. It was crazy liberals as it is today, but it was a perfect fit for me from a kid from Southern California that loved things outside the four walls of the church. And my wife from Texas, a Latin background, we dropped in here and it was a perfect mix because it was all Californian Texans and Coloradoans, Californians. And so, uh, but our end goal was how do we get ourselves overseas? And um, so within two years, we, we planted ourselves starting ministries in Concepcion, Chile, pre-kids and came home and we are on this good ministry uh, treadmill. And a lot of ministries, two performers getting into the world. And we're like, we cranked it. Multiple Bible studies in, in the dorms and Greeks and sororities. And we moved to Spain to launch a ministry in Malaga, Spain. We took a four-month-old. 
And uh, my parents and everybody thought we were crazy. I'm like, they have doctors in Spain. We're going to be fine. And it was a really wonderful time, but I think it was the beginning of some of the brokenness in our life. That's part of where some of the journey undercover in our hearts and souls took a, a major turn, but I didn't know it for another six years. How so? How did it take a turn? It was a great time. Having a, a little four-month-old. Women were really, are really honored in Spain. Moms are, I think, even another level. It felt, my wife felt like for the first time she felt like she was valuable. Mm. Because here in the States, oftentimes, if you're in full-time ministry and you have a kid, they kick you to the side. Even as a wife, she didn't understand it. Our ministry forced her to have a wives' day. She's like, that's dumb. He doesn't have a husband's day. Like, well, it's for you to do laundry and shop and cook. It was crazy talk. And so she just, I hate that. She goes, I love discipling girls. And, um, but Spain was a different thing because when she got pregnant, they're like, okay, you don't do a ministry anymore. And you're just kind of on the side, you raise kids. And that just was really hard on her. So when we moved to Spain, she'd roll around on these universities and, and around town and people were like, oh my gosh, we had this huge, massive curly head boy. And he was dark skin, uh, more the Latin color, <laughs> but she became famous everywhere she rolled. College students, men and women would come up to her and want to talk to her and she's fluent. So it was home. Mm. I was offered a, an opportunity to direct Southern Spain and the in, that's where some of the insecurities already started popping. And I didn't know it, but in hindsight, I'd go, I was afraid that if I stayed there, I'd miss some sort of leadership engine that was happening in the U.S. for progression of leaders, for job promotions, for impact. And if I stayed in Spain, I'd be left behind. And so I said no. And she wanted to stay. So came back and we had our second child. And then I became a campus director at CU. Had a large ministry. We we're sending kids, starting ministries in Russia, still sending people to Chile, sending people to Spain. How'd you end up back in Boulder? I said no. And there was, I wasn't a director, but there's, they took me back because it was only a year commitment to be in Spain. I turned down the Spain job and we still had our home. We had a year rental. So we just came back and kind of moved in. But I think she started dying. A mom of two and still did some women's stuff. We always had college students in our home. She does have 20 or 30 college women in her house every week. But um, I was in this performance of, I've got to lead. The next step is to be a campus director because then you've arrived. And CU is one of those flagship campuses. It's liberal, it's big, but if you have a big ministry, you're, you're pretty amazing. And um, none of that was taught. I think that was just a perfect storm of my own crap mm -hmm. and the opportunity to perform in a ministry. I've raised a ton of money. And became director, had staff teams of 25, 30, trying to reach the campus, sending people all over the world. And then they asked me to go down to Mexico City. We had our daughter. Yeah, I think she was one. They said, why don't you go down to Mexico City for about 10 days? We're putting together a group of world leaders to figure out how do we hit the big cities of the world. And um, 28 million, I think at the time it might have been the second biggest city. So we go down there and I come back and... I could just sense it wasn't about me just being a consultant down there. It was me saying the Lord, I could tell the Lord's tug of my heart was go to Mexico city. And I remember my, my oldest son, Jonathan, we were all sitting in our little home outside of Boulder and um, we're sitting at the dinner table and I'm sharing this story about, I think God's calling us to go. And my seven-year-old looks at my wife and I and says, well, if God's telling us to go, we got to go. And um, mm. 
that was kind of the Lord putting me over the edge going, I'm going to leave one of the greatest jobs within Camps Crusade, CU Boulder, and it's flourishing. And they've given me kind of no shackles. I can create different things. I canceled our weekly meeting because I, I'm not a, I don't like preaching, but I love missional incarnational work, sending kids into the hardest places of campus. And so we just, we flipped our ministry upside down and I left. And um, we left in the summer, early summer of 2006. About a month later, we find out we're pregnant with our fourth. Six months later, the day after Thanksgiving, Christine and I get in a fight. And she goes, I don't love you anymore. And I'm leaving you. What? And all my world just collapsed. And so I called my good friend who's on our regional team. I go, something's wrong. And that was Friday. Tuesday, I convinced her kicking and screaming because I think she wanted to stay in Mexico City. And um, Tuesday, we loaded up as much suitcases as possible because Mexico City was a three to 10 year move. We had sold everything in Boulder, cars, everything was gone. And we'd bought cars in Mexico City. We had a two year term lease and it was home. Tuesday, we got on a plane. So we're going home early for Christmas. And we drop in Dallas where her twin sister was. We leave our kids there. Five days later, we show up in uh, Colorado. Really kind friend of mine was had their house in the market. They pulled it off the market for two weeks. It was furnished. And then we, we dropped in there and, and stayed in their house down in uh, Wash Park area. And we went to intensive counseling, 45 hours in two weeks. What? Four and a half hours of marriage counseling. And then about three and a half hours of homework every afternoon. Wow. It was hell, <laughs> but this is how crazy it was because now my, my world, the trajectory of my world is I worship the great commission. I worship great marriage. I worship great leadership. I worshiped impact the, um, changing the world, sending all that stuff. Those are some big idols for me. And day one, our counselor, Michael Cusick, still in town, a dear saint, one of my heroes, he lit a candle and it says, God, the Father, Holy Spirit, and Jesus are present, and there's no shame. And my wife starts weeping, and somewhere in the first hour, I said, can you fix her? <laughs> so you can just see how bad it was, how jacked up and messed up. Because I just thought, if you can fix her, <clears throat> we can get back by January to Mexico City. We had pulled teammates there, asked people to change their lives, to follow us, to move, to sell stuff. What was going on with her that got her to that point? Mm -hmm. A lot. And it came out in that intensive counseling and counseling in the next six months. <laughs> what came out was the dream. Uh, she just, she didn't have any dreams. I wasn't listening well. She was lonely. I missed the cues. We were how old? We were 35, four kids or three kids at the time, pregnant hormones. It's, it's real during pregnancy but just lonely. And I missed those cues. And I thought, cause I, I'd heard enough. I wish we'd stayed in Spain. I wish we stayed in Spain. I wish you took that job. Yet I was on this, a rocket ship trajectory of leadership and impact and changing the world for Jesus. He needed us. And, uh, so I missed those cues, but once it all kind of came out, it was, I thought I fixed it because I moved you to a Latin country. You're now, she's Mexican American. She speaks the language. This is home. We're having a great thing. But she's like, I'm home with three kids homeschooling and I never leave. Mm -hmm. And um, 
that it, it, the wound had started in Spain because I didn't listen well. Mm. It's not just a me thing. It's an us thing. And I just didn't listen well. And her dream started to die when I said no to Spain. So six years later, perfect storm. I remember a counselor saying, it's a perfect storm of your own sin, the wickedness of the warfare of the evil one. And just Mexico City was awesome, but complex and evil. How so? It's a dark city. Um, really? Yeah. And we lived outside the city, but it's still six miles. I'd drive to the nearest metro. That took me about an hour. The traffic was horrendous. And we lived in a nice neighborhood. So we were kind of this elitist outside, be safe. We were gated communities. I'm like, I want my kids to be able to have a neighborhood and not get kidnapped. But then you go into the city and I'd be gone for hours and for most days. And she'd be at home with three little humans. Mm. And I'm changing the world. And here's my wife, who's just as committed to the Great Commission and Jesus as me, is at home. And I think sometimes, I don't know if it's ministries or evangelicalism, they really uh, throw women to the side. And I think that was part of it. She saw, I'm just being thrown aside. Mm. And so... Gosh, it's just even speaking, it breaks my heart by how numb I was to what was going on inside of her. And um, first week, I think my counselor called me an asshole. I'm like, you're a Christian counselor. You're not supposed to do that. But he, he went after me. Second week is probably the first time I met Jesus on a deep, incarnational, real way. Really? Yeah, it was powerful. It is one of the remembering stones of my life. Changed me forever. What happened? He just asked one Wednesday morning, he goes, Christine, you don't have to stay. If you want to go, you can see, he goes, no, I want to stay. And we were in, by no means did she even want to be with me. She was done, but something was uncovering during this intensive counseling as well for her, probably more for her faster than it was for me. She was more honest with her crap and her sin and her life. And for me, it was just got to get back, got to get back, got to keep impacting. And so he walked me through a, uh, I think it's called theophostic prayer. And just said, let's pray. And just walked me into a journey of talking with the Lord and listening. And he brought me to a point, I was probably about eight or nine years old. And he goes, okay, where are you? I go, I'm in my grandparents' farmhouse, the dairy house. My mom, dad, grandma, and grandpa Corny all sitting there. And I come in from the outside playing. And I came in and I wanted to get their attention. And I was just kind of like we a lot of times, sadly, we do to our kids. Oh, just go out inside and play. Go out in the pool. They had a pool in the backyard, just shooed me away. And right away, my counselor goes, how, do you, how does that make you feel? I go, I'm loved. And I'm not, I guess I'm not good enough. And somewhere in that, it was an hour and 45 minute prayer. It felt like five minutes. He asked me, um, well, where's Jesus? And here I am, a nine-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. I'm me. Jesus shows up behind me and picks me up and puts his head on my neck and says, I love you. And I just start weeping. Mm-hmm. And then immediately I turn into a grown adult and, he, and I'm straddling him. So if me and you were to hug, it's going to be awkward. We won't do this because it is really awkward. If I was to hug you and try to pick you up, two grown adults, it doesn't matter how strong we are. Still, it takes a lot of effort, but it was light. It was free. It was the most restful I've ever been. And I'm now a 36 year old man in Jesus's arms and him just saying, it's okay. I love you. I love you. And it, and it was the real Jesus. He showed up to me and I'd been preaching the gospel for 14 years. I think I just experienced the gospel at that moment and it changed me. And so, yeah, I'll never be the same because of that. But it took the Lord, the call to have him move us to Mexico was totally real. 
It was to go change the world, but he went and changed our world. So marriage one ended. We stayed married. It was still really brutal for six months. I, I was the Verizon commercial after that two weeks of intensive counseling. And you got to understand, I was still pretty broken. I was going into depression. We fly to Southern California to do Christmas. My dad goes, hey, do you want all the extended families there? I'm the missionary guy. And everybody knows we're home because our marriage is something went wrong. We just raised about $150,000, $200,000 to move to Mexico City. Donors. And uh, my dad goes, do you want to pray for the Christmas meal? And I look at my dad, who's got a really tender faith and it's real. We, we had a great, we still have a great relationship. And I look at him, I go, I don't ever effing want to pray for another Christmas meal in my life. I was so raw. And then about a month later, we moved it. We, we landed by a dear friend of mine said, Hey, there's a rental down the street for me in Greeley. It's a great community. We landed in his basement for about a month until our stuff arrived from Mexico city Cost us 20 grand to move to Mexico City. Cost us 45 grand to move home. The moving oh, company wow. had us by the balls. Wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cigar is good. I'm just talking too much. Happens. Mm-hmm. Happens with guests. And um, I think it was about January, I told the Lord to F off to the Great Commission. But I had to because I loved that more than I loved him. And he took me to, those are the dark nights of my soul. Ooh. Still pregnant. We lost Christine's mom that year. So it was another gift. We, got, we actually showed up at home when her mom was dying. And that was really hard. In the mornings, she'd homeschool the two older boys. And I'd play with my two-year-old daughter. I think we still have a close relationship because my daughter became really close to me. And I just sent her to college. And that's why I wept for basically 24 hours in a row after I, she, I sent her to Grand Canyon University. I got home and I wept for a day because I still remember those moments of sitting, having her sit in my lap, just singing worship songs mm. and wanting something of Jesus mm. to show up. I'd put her down for lunch and then my wife being pregnant would just crash. And the boys would go to the park and play with all the other homeschool little nerdy kids. And they said it was their best years of growing up with those two years of Greeley. Of Greeley recovering marriage, recovering our souls. For them, it, it was heaven. But I think it was also mom and dad were coming alive. Really? Uh-huh. And I remember I'd put my daughter down for naps and I'd sit on the porch. And that's really when a, a neighbor of mine, guy I met in church up in Greeley, introduced me to cigars. I had smoked Swisher Sweets and pipes with college yeah. students, but that's when cigars came. But I'd drink, journal, read, smoke cigars, and cry. Wow. And that was... Four months worth, four or five months worth, because ministry doesn't know what to do with broken people. <laughs> That's the truth. And she's pregnant. So I became the, the, the brunt of what they were focused on. Got to fix him. Got to fix him. Because now she's, again, she's a mom. She doesn't really do ministry. So we don't have to fix her, but we don't know what's wrong with her. And, um, but I remember coming late March, I hadn't done anything. No work, no responsibilities, not a, by God's grace, not a donor left us. We, we were in January prayer letter. Hey, we came home. We've got marriage issues. Not a donor left us. Not a penny left us. What? It was shocking. What? Not one. Wow. For 11 months, not $1 left us. And, but March, I'm out there in the backyard, pull out a piece of paper and a pen. I start writing a to-do list. First time since November. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, to-do list is wake up. Brush your teeth, shower, take out the trash, eat lunch. These are things you just kind of normally do. And I just start weeping in the backyard. 
and going, mm. I can't do this, Lord. I'm done. I'm just mm. done. I don't know where she is. Because I used to be like the Verizon commercial. Do you love me now? Do you love me now? I'd see a glimmer of something. Maybe we'd have sex once. I go, do you love me now? Do you love me now? And she goes, no. Mm. But I'm here. I'm trying. Mm. And um, gosh, we were, <laughs> I was such a mess. So was she, but I was a mess too. And uh, I remember walking in the kitchen. It was lunchtime. I just spent an hour weeping in the backyard. And uh, she goes, what's wrong? I go, I can't do it. I just can't do this anymore. Mm. And then she said, I'm sorry. And I'm, and I'm, 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 and I'm loving you. That was the first time that gave me enough hope. Mm. We were still going down every week for four hours of counseling. We drive from Greeley to Denver and God was just stripping away performance, the engine, the idols, and just showing him, I, I, I yeah. had a relationship with God and he liked me yet. We were broken. So I still didn't know what to do. So <laughs> it was still hard. So what'd you do? I left the ministry. They didn't know what to do with us. And one of my counselors says, you got to leave. And I joined this little missional order. And I'm like, I'm going to do what I did in Mexico City. I'm going to do it in Denver. Project Revive. And we're going to connect cities and governments and business and health and community and faith. And we're going to have them all playing the same sandbox for Kingdom Works. Oh, and when I made the shift to this little missional order, 60% of my donors left me in 20 days. Not $1 left in 11 months. But when I made the shift, 60% left. So now I'm financially struggling. And I'm trying to raise money and no one would support me. First time ever in my life. Before I could sell a burnt piece of toast. And now I, I couldn't. God just took his hand off the ability to raise support. So I started working part-time for a buddy, a neighbor. He was starting some mattress stores. And so I drive down to Boulder. And he goes, hey, can you help infuse some kingdom community stuff into a, a, a pretty sleazy industry? And I go really? down. Yeah, I go down. Sleazy? One mattresses? Yeah, it's like drug dealers. Street workers, lawyers, used car salesmen, and mattress store owners and salesmen. So we were on the bottom rung of the side. It fit me really well. I was really broken. So we opened up mattress stores. But I came down just for a season to work on a Tuesday. He just opened it. He was his only employee. He was a phenomenal entrepreneur, sales guy. He said, I need a day off. So I'd go down there one day a week, mm-hmm. do books and ops and sell. Then he offered me to come on full-time. I said, no, I'm doing this ministry thing. So I turned him down. And uh, that was, yeah, that was 07. Took about a year. And then eventually I moved to Denver and opened up mattress stores. We opened up four mattress stores. How were you infusing kingdom principles in that industry? Same time. I had started going to, um, it was called Baki Graduate University. Ray Mm -hmm. Baki, Dennis Baki. Lowell Bakke and, and their sister. And the sister's the one that got in their, their brains. So you got inner city mission worker, Ray Bakke, phenomenal leader in Chicago. Dennis Bakke, joy at work guy, big kingdom theology guy at work. And then Lowell, the pastor in Boulder. And the sister, the prophetic one, says, you guys need to buy a university to go impact cities, the gospel, and globalization. So I landed at this university that was mostly remote. And you'd go to a class for a week, and then you do remote work. And it was in Seattle, but I'd drop in and out. One of my professors, uh, I had started, but I, what I was doing in the mattress store, because again, here's former missionary now making money, feeling guilty that I'm making money. So I'd work five days a week in the mattress store and two days a week, no Sabbath, two days a week. I'm doing stuff in the city as much as I could. I'm like, well, still supposed to do impact in cities and communities and poverty. 
And my professor, Dr. Paul Stevens, he wrote The Six Other Days, probably one of the more other transformational pieces in my adulthood. In class of theology of work class, he looks at me and goes, stop it. You're killing yourself. You're killing your family. Ooh. And he just goes, this mattress thing is kingdom at the deep core. He's one sleep and he's unpacking all this theology of work for me. And it freed me up to go, I'm not doing all this other stuff. I'm just going to love my employees. And so enjoyed my business partner. And we both didn't know what we were doing, but we were doing it and started making money. And we hired refugees and felons and, and we could always, we always said we can teach people to sell. We can't teach people to be loving and caring. So we'd hire former worship pastors and former teachers and, and it was a great ride. Yeah. So we infused. And so I think the, the business education, grad school, Dr. Paul Stevens, and then my business partner, and I just trying to flesh it out. Two former missionaries now playing in the, in the mattress retail world. How is the mattress retail world so sleazy? We weren't. No, I know. But in general, I'm speaking <laughs> overall. It just, um, I don't know what it is. It just, it feels sleazy. There's, uh, it's always bottom chumming. We were more of a luxury store, so it pulled us away from that. It's always bottom chumming. It's, it, you're going for the lowest sale. You're selling garbage. And a lot of the stuff doesn't last. And so a traditional 10-year warranty is going to last three to five years. And that's just part of the game. And it just, it just, there's pieces that just felt dirty. I think the sales, it's, it's like the used car sales method. It's always bargaining and haggling and fighting. And so it's just not, you don't go to Target and say, I want this shirt for $5 less. But you go to a mattress store and say, I want $500 off of this. And so you're always fighting. Mm. And so we just tried to be a little bit different. I think we did really well for about 10 years, at least in mine. And then humans got together and started messing things up. Best friends started messing each other up. Mm-hmm. How so? Um, what was going on? We, our, our confidants, our consultants were each other. Best friend was the franchisor. Best friend was my former missionary friend of 20 some years and business partner. Money's involved. And we didn't have anybody to help us process each other. We were processing each other with each other. So we had no outside consultants and advice and business coaches. And so when things go funky or contracts go awry, you're looking at your best friend going and you start fighting. And we started fighting. And the worst of us all came out. I think all three of us, the worst came out. Mm. And it went sideways. And um, yeah, different strengths and relationships. I'm so grateful uh, for these men. But yeah, we all went pretty sideways. And Did it heal? No. That's sad. I know. And when I first came into it, many people says, don't go in with your friend. Don't go in with your friends. And out of ignorance and just, I believe in people. My counselor would say, I was just processing with some friends I'm on a cohort with. And they said, what are your assets? And I said, one of them is I just deeply believe in redemption. I believe in people that broken people can always win together. And so I went into business pretty naive, but we also didn't have the skills and how to, we had some skills and we all had great skills, but we didn't know how to operate well with each other. Mm. What would you do differently? Three things. And now, now my old age, I would hire some sort of peer advisory group and that, that story will come later. Now I'm watching it on the, on the tail end. I would have gotten other businessmen and women in my life, speaking into me, teaching me how to write contracts, teaching me how, what other things were missing, teaching me a proper debt strategy for growth. 
conflict resolution with business partners, that would be one. Another one would be an operating system. And the, it's interesting enough, uh, the book that came out, I think in 2011, called Traction. It's an EOS book. Yep. Golly, that would have saved us. Gina Wickman. It would have saved us. We had gifted men and women not holding each other accountable in their proper roles and resources. We're just being good guys trying to run a business. Yeah. But when things get, I always say cash covers a multitude of sins. So when we were on explosive growth right away, made a ton of money right away. But as soon as it tightened up, we didn't have the skills to operate properly. And you burn through things really quick. And so Mm. I would have some sort of peer group, coaching group that would help each other. I would have an EOS operating system, great game of business, strategic coach, somebody like that. And then I would have part that we, we didn't always do well at. We hired great people, but just wrong skill sets. I'd have some sort of assessment tool. I had Bible studies. I had kingdom theology. We had church. We had all that stuff. We didn't have all the business blocking and tackling that makes kingdom businesses, I think, take off at the next level. But I think God used it as another idol worship. I quickly, we used to host these young, they're all in their thirties and forties now, but these guys would come into our warehouses. We had a beer on tap at all of our stores. It was just a very relational experience in our stores. And so I I would host all these young 20 somethings in our warehouse about once a month. And we'd talk about kingdom entrepreneurship. So right away I, I created another idol. That was amazing. It's a great thing, but I think it became the focus. Hey, we're this, I was interviewed by Christianity today and another mattress industry magazine started interviews because we were explosive growth. We were, we just, I think in two years, I helped launch 13 stores out of the state of Colorado. We are on a trajectory to open up another 50 to 60 around the U S and those relationship pieces started floundering. And what happened with that? Oh, I had it sold my business, just another movement of God. I'd say marriage two and all that growth marriage two was ending. I could see some patterns showing again in my wife and I, And now we're in the thick of youth sports and I had all these competitive kids playing sports and that's the suburban way, Christian way, it's church and sports and you're just cooking each other. And, um, I, I put myself back into counseling and I knew, I knew we needed help, but it wasn't marriage counseling this time. It was Steve counseling. So I called my intensive counselor and he goes, no, you're on my board and we're friends now. He goes, go see this wise sage, David Donaldson up in golden. He goes, he works with all the broken healers in town. He's about 80 years old. He had early Parkinson's. He'd shake and David unpacked something in me. He brought me to a deeper sense. I still had a lot of codependency things. So part of my issue with Christine was, I think part of the issues was she was done parenting another child, me. I needed my affirmation from her. I think a lot of men need their Mm -hmm. affirmation from the woman to be lifted up, to be exalted. And I equated, well, if we had sex, then we must be good. And we had sex. And so, but she just got exhausted of having to take care of Steve. Mm. And so I think she was done again. But this time I went into counseling and it was the first time, it took me about a year of counseling for my counselor to get me to a point of saying, I can let her go. I was terrified to have a conversation with her and saying, Christina, I'm letting you go. If you don't choose me, I'll be okay. Took me about a year of counseling every week to know I'm going to be okay Mm. with or without marriage. I'll be a great dad. I'll still be a business leader. I'm still going to be a follower of Jesus and I'll be okay. And I still remember early 2015 telling her up in her bathroom, Christine, I want to be married to you, but I don't need you anymore. And I'm letting you go. 
And I don't know if she knew how to take it, but at that point she was in counseling as well. And then she went and hired a business coach on, on, no, it wasn't online. It was on the phone. It was pre zoom. He was a very expensive. I call him uncle Dave, some guy in, in Malibu, not a believer. And he unpacked something in her along with her counselor, but it was her counselor and him. So what are you dreaming about? And she goes, I'm not dreaming. Steve's got all the dreams. He's the visionary. She had no dreams. She goes, I don't know what I want in my life, mm-hmm. but I know I don't want this. Mm-hmm. And she started dreaming for the first time. I was terrified because I thought she's going to dream. And then she'd come home and share these things with me. Say, hey, I'm dreaming about leading these women's trips to Spain. And I want to live in Spain part of the year. It's tying back into that mm-hmm. 2000. I don't even know what year it was, 1998. And uh, I was terrified. I'm like, she's going to go to Spain and leave me for another man. And I'm done. And I remember looking at my counselor, going, I don't trust her. And he goes, can you trust me? I said, yes, I can trust you. And he goes, go for it. And I remember coming to, and then it took me about another six months to realize the business was killing me. I'd been fired from the franchise level. I was launching stores because it went sideways. And I remember having a conversation in 2014, uh, 15, going, I guess this is all it's going to be. I'll just run mattress stores. I hated running mattress stores. I loved opening mattress stores. And launching them all over the planet, but I hated running them. Mm. But I had a conversation with God and I said, Lord, if this is it, this is okay. I'll just stay and I'll be faithful. And I killed part of my soul. And it took me about another six months for him to say, you've got to sell. And I was coming down out of golden from counseling. And I finally had the nerve to tell my business partner, I need to be bought out. And in my business partner, I walk into our main showroom and he goes, Hey, stop. He goes, how was counseling? I go, it was wonderful. I got to talk to you. He goes, no, me first. And he goes, I got to buy you out. And I went, what? I go, that's literally what I was telling you I, I needed to do. And he goes, awesome. We came up with a price and we had our closing June 15, 2016. He bought me out. And that afternoon, the franchisor foibled the buy-sell. What? <laughs> and said he wouldn't re-sign my franchisor or franchise, my business partner. He wouldn't re-sign his franchise agreement in four years when it expired. And so I looked at my best friend. I, I tore up the check. I said, no, I'm in with you. And so then we put it on the market. Within two weeks, we had a letter of intent on it. Same price, dear friend of ours. He went through the process for about six, seven months. We were hemorrhaging cash. Pre-sale, you hemorrhage cash. And again, we didn't know what we were doing. But we knew in November, we had it sold. In October, um, the franchisor changed his mind with that guy as well. He was pre-approved all the way through. And at that point, now we're broke. We've hired too many people to replace us. Our manager said he wanted it and that went sideways. Uh, franchisor wouldn't approve it. So we tried to sell it for a year, didn't sell it. We went with the franchise broker. But a year and a half later, I, I had a buddy of mine that was a broker. And I said, uh, let's drop it about a million dollars. He goes, you're going to sell this in two minutes. And he goes, let me call the franchisor to see who will approve. And he says, I won't approve anybody, only me. And so we walked out of there for a hundred grand. <sighs> only about $2 million shorter than what we had it sold before. And at that point, I was like, Lord, I'm done. I'm done. And, but we, he wouldn't let us out. So we still had to run our worst store for two years. And so we lost money for about two years. We lost a thousand to $5,000 a month for two years. What? Great education. And, um, that was where my prayer life grew. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I'd walk into this retail store at 10 a.m. And I'd sit there and just, no one come in. It was like, I had the crappy store. 
the good store was sold for a nickel. And uh, I would just pray. I'd walk the showroom and pray. And then finally, in 2020, we exited. Finally got out of our lease. I also had another company I'd started, so I was doing stuff on the side. But I am so grateful for those, I think it was 13, 14 years. Learned a ton. Learned a ton. Some of the greatest experiences. <laughs> I loved working alongside my best friends. We made a lot of mistakes. God was really gracious to us. It ended bad. Still the best mattress store in the state of Colorado. They, they do a great job. Sometimes we're just run by bad people. Not bad people. No, it wasn't bad people. Just broken people. We were run by yeah. humans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my Holy Smokes friends have bought mattresses from them. <laughs> so I still send them that place. So yeah, very grateful. What was the other business that you had started? So in 2014, we go to a furniture market and we're like, gosh, the stuff we sell sometimes is garbage. And we walked around furniture market and said, we're going to make pillows. Because we had these certain pillows, some from China, some from local, some from Asia and different parts of Asia. We're like, but we don't like this one. I don't like this one. So we started making our own pillows and testing them out in our showroom. And people were like, what, what, what? They loved them. <coughs> so we created our own little brand. We were making them in the basement of our warehouse. I would hire my son who was still in high school, my two sons. And I'd say, go find your high school buddies that don't have dads. I want to be their work dad. And so on Saturdays, those guys would make 100 to 150 pillows and I'd sell them to other retail stores because I, and our own stores and our whole franchise as well started buying them. And then I knew what retailers around the country hated about manufacturers. And so I started selling them around the country. And um, what I, did they hate about manufacturers that you were doing differently? Oh, order minimums, sneaky shipping and handling charges. So you, you buy a pillow and it weighs like three pounds. Yeah, it takes a box. Or you buy a set of sheets from somebody and they'd throw on 25 bucks for shipping and handling. Like, it's just, oh, our prices are the best. I'm like, yeah, but your shipping and handling is the worst. So I just did flat shipping and handling, no profit margin in it. People started buying them. And the pillows didn't require minimums because they were fully customizable. They were all natural, fully customizable. And so instead of ordering 10 types of pillows for all the different humans on planet Earth, you could buy one pillow, sell one pillow that would make most of those people's needs. So it decreased their inventory and they loved it because they're not sitting on five, six, seven thousand dollars worth of inventory. They're sitting on maybe 500 bucks mm-hmm. and we just send them out stuff. I did that on the side. My kids were making pillows in the basement. And a couple years into it, a former GM of mine broke away and made a, uh, started a nonprofit in, in Denver called Mile High Workshop. And their job was to, to create labor for felons, addicts, and homeless. And so I busted out and then they did everything. Cut, sew, stuff, package, ship. They did everything for me. And at the end of COVID, we had a great year in COVID because it was e-com. I also busted out an e-com biz and the same thing. So we had B2B brand and an e-com brand. And at the end of COVID, I heard the Lord say, give away your pillow company. What? Mm-hmm. Give it away. Mm-hmm. Audibly? No. But man, it was deep in my soul. Because it's also, he was killing another idol, kingdom entrepreneurship being a kingdom entrepreneur that impacts the world. And what was it? I think the Christianity Today article was the mattress kings of the kingdom or something like that. So, so dumb. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I, I, I was sensing those two years of praying when we were losing money every month yeah. that he was killing that. And I, I just really said, Lord, I'll do anything. I don't have to own a business again. 
And so I literally just started pitching it for free to people. Yeah. But they had about $200,000 of product on shelves, raw goods, products, and cash. And I went to the nonprofit ministry and said, do you want it? And they said no initially, but six months later, they said yes. So over the course of a year, their board approved it. They uh, just transferred my SBA loan. They still actually owe me a dollar for the sale. <laughs> so I sold it for a dollar. Maybe that was being disobedient. So that's why I haven't received my dollar. And they're running with it. And that's when I turned 50. And just it, So I had another opportunity. I was like, what am I going to do? And what did you do? I had a gentleman out of Kansas City that had moved to Colorado a couple years ago, took me out for breakfast, had no idea what he did. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't reading LinkedIn. I wasn't reading email signatures. I didn't know how to stalk people. I was, I used to just sell pillows and mattresses. And um, in five minutes after an hour and a half conversation, just talked about life and family and my story that I just told you guys. And um, he goes, I think you'd be good at something. And he goes, I got to go. And he walks out the door and gets in his car. And so two weeks later, he calls me, he goes, hey, I want to have a follow-up conversation. And slowly, I learned that he had a business that was um, called Acumen out of Kansas City. He goes, we want to launch it into Colorado, and we're looking for a regional president to start. And I'm like, great. It's not a business. It's a job. Just hire. So we bounced around for about three months. I flew to Kansas City. About our fourth or fifth date, he goes, oh, by the way, it's not a job. It's a business. And I wanted to punch him because I felt like I'm done. I'm done starting another venture. Yet the Lord said, go for it. So two and a half years ago, we launched Acumen on the Front Range. It's launching kingdom, faith-valued business peer groups. We solve business issues. We're not, a, we're not a business's mission. We're not Bible studies. We're literally just solving business issues, but with a deep faith value set. And so our, our window is very open to those that self-profess to be Catholics or Christians. Believe in God, you're in. Because the community transforms people. Mm. And seeing their businesses explode because they're all helping each other. So they're doing all the things I needed 10 years prior to save my business. They're poking at blind spots. They're opening each other's books open and saying, hey, where am I missing on my P&Ls, my balance sheet, am I over leveraged? It's phenomenal to watch these guys and gals, their co-ed, help each other grow their businesses. How did it start? That's a great, for me or for the organization? The organization. Yeah, so the gentleman, um, Drew Hiss, who now lives in Evergreens, chairman and founder, he had a massive, massive exit from his payroll company, merged with Paycorps, one of the largest payroll companies in the country. And he's 45 years old, not having to work much. And he goes, but he bumped into Bob Buford halftime, spent about a year with those guys. Bob's transformed lots of people. It is. And but then he came across Convene, another phenomenal peer coaching group. And yeah. he started Convene in Kansas City right away, explosive. But then he saw some nuances he wanted to change. So he busted out of Convene and started Acumen. He, there was a couple things. He wanted to be a little bit more open so that those that are on the margins of faith would come in. He wanted to shrink down some of the full day events to half days and just create a, a greater movement. Instead of creating one team with a coach or two teams with a coach, he goes, he had a vision for how do we transform a city? And that's going to need 10, 15, 20 teams. And they all connect. So you don't just connect with your own peer group of business leaders, but you're going to connect with 100, 150. And that's the vision that caught me is, wait, we can see a marketplace movement across the front range. Because I, I really think there's about two areas that are going to transform our culture globally, as well as here in the USA, is if we can transform families and marriages and we can transform the marketplace, we have hope. And that's literally the only two things I really say yes to and cigars. So I say yes to mentoring marriages and mentoring businessmen. And that's really Christianized focus. My wife's an entrepreneur and does some stuff on the side too. What's she got going on? 
She is a crazy fit woman that's passionate about health and wellness. So she does a lot of mindset coaching, accountability coaching, helps women and men with hormones and macros and eating healthy. And, and then she's also a strength and conditioning coach. Sometimes I'd say she's probably short part of her DNA because she just pushes her body and is in great shape and loves it. And so she, she's got this deep pastoral heart. You put Christine in the room with anybody, she's going to be cared for, loved, and she'll help them accomplish what they're trying to do. And so sometimes it's just listening. It has nothing to do with health and wellness mm-hmm. and fitness. It's just listening. So I should listen to my wife. That's a lesson learned of, we just celebrated 30 years. Congratulations. Yes. And so we're on marriage three, but we're still married to the same person. Really grateful. And her dreams have come alive. She now leads women's trips to Spain. She just got back about a week and a half ago and she led six women. They walked 75 miles in Northwest Spain on the Camino de Santiago. It's a deeply soul felt trip. And you're walking through some of the prettiest places on earth. We just talked about the Camino with Jimmy Graham on the last interview. I love it. It's heaven. So we're going to, she's going to lead a couple women's trips. The list is, the waiting list is growing. And I think we're going to add on a couple's trip next year. And it is cigar friendly. So when I, I've walked the Camino four times, I've smoked a cigar every time I've walked. So, (laughs) (laughs) and you can get, uh, you can get Cubans in Spain. So it works well. How has your marriage changed over these trials And where are you guys at right now? We're having a ton of fun now. It's a choice. It's exemplified at at 25 year anniversary. We went to Santorini and something that kept catching me in art studios and all around town and restaurants, you see these figurines or artwork of couples embracing each other. And we have this figurine from when we were engaged. It's this porcelain figurine of this couple dancing and embrace. And it's just one big blob. They're like one. And I think my image of marriage early on was Christian oneness. You kill yourselves for the sake of one. And it's even was exemplified in our wedding ceremony. Two candles, light one, blow out yourselves. And to now I look back and go on, we basically just killed ourselves to this blob that I think is inaccurate. But in Greece, I kept seeing this artwork and I asked our, our, one of the art studios that was by our little Airbnb, like, can you explain this? You've got these images of these couples embracing. It looks very passionate, erotic, but there's always a line in between of them. It's a hard line. And he opened it up and he goes, yeah, they're one, but they're still separate. Mm -hmm. So where's marriage come? We're no longer codependent. We're choosing each other. We've got some really healthy boundaries. She's by far my best friend. It's much more passion. It's much more erotic. There's a choice. And when Christine chooses me sexually, emotionally, prayerfully, relationally, it's a choice. Because here's the ugly part. In 2015, in my counseling session with my old guy counselor, I remember saying something, well, she signed a marriage certificate. She can't leave me. <laughs> and he looked at me, he goes, that's so dumb. He goes, do you want a marriage based on a contract? Or do you want a, one based on passion and eroticism and choice? And I was like, oh, yeah, I want that ladder. We have that ladder now. And so now we choose to go into conflict more. A, a, a secular author that I really has been impactful in my life is David Schnark. And he teaches differentiation and choice, but he, and it's so helped us understand that we are different, but we can come together and it, it's transformed us. I would say we're whole now before we were really good at marriage, even though we were really sucky at parts, but we're whole. Mm. How has this impacted your kids? Ooh, that's really good. It changed the way we parent. 
brokenness doesn't scare us anymore because we're the most broken, messed up, sinful people. The stuff that we did to each other was horrific. And so that doesn't scare us anymore. And so when we've had kids that have showed up drunk or oopsie with weed or something like this, I remember child not to be named. (laughs) It was in the emergency room for a stupid mistake. And my 25 year old now, Jonathan, this is, I don't know how many years ago it was, but he, he grabbed me and goes, dad, how are you going to handle this? He goes, and have my son be able to speak into me. He goes, can I give you some tips? He goes, can you just pour grace on the situation? And it was a supernatural evening. The whole family was there. Fiance was there. It was powerful. That's one piece. COVID year was really special for us because I'd sent a son to go play football at CU Boulder. Another one was working for the team. I'm in Mexico with my wife, my two little humans. They were they were in high school, I think. And so we're in COVID world. The world's imploding. My boys move home. They take over our house while we're gone on vacation. They just messed it up. Yet we come home and now we have a full house again. We thought we'd never see the older boys back. And for us, it was dinners, movies, games, volleyball in the park. It became really rich. And the tradition we'd started years ago with the older boys, everyone drops off technology in the room at night. So my room's like the cancer-causing room, but all the kids' rooms are safe. And there's no technology other than our room. It's locked in our room. But we'd also pray and talk and, and typically try to do a devotional. That was about the one time with sports and world and this. But the college kids are home now. And we're all laying on the bed and they're laughing. It was one of these nights where I'm probably tired going, just get out of my room. I'm tired. Or I have really two goals at night after eight o'clock. It's to get my wife naked and make her laugh. And so that's probably on my mind. But the kids are laughing in the room and they're having a ton of fun and joking. And my daughter, probably this is three years ago, she's 15. She goes, I just don't get it that you guys were going to get a divorce. Because what she's, she has been experiencing and Benjamin at the time was 19. He goes, yeah, Isabella, I was six in Mexico City and I don't remember it. And then John at that time was 21, goes, oh, I remember it. He goes, I remember dad yelling at mom saying, just stay for the sake of the kids. Wow. He got really quiet. And then my daughter goes and kind of laughing. She goes, wait, <coughs> mom was leaving you, dad? <laughs> and so my wife and I leave. We just kind of look at each other and tears are coming down our eyes. And, it's, and, it's, and we said, this is why we believe in the gospel. Mm. It changes us. Wow. It changed mom and dad. And it changed what you guys are experiencing as a family. And wow. how you guys experience God's grace and Isa and Jacob and Ben and John, all your screw ups. It's why we, we cover ourselves in grace. And that was a holy moment. Now I have two married children. And so it just gives me this whole different perspective of going, I'm in for them. And nothing that they do to each other, all the hardships, because it's coming. I also didn't have people in my life saying marriage was hard. And so we've just been very real. And so my 22-year-old took me out for Father's Day this year, and we just talked about marriage and how hard and great and amazing and difficult. And I'm like, I'm having this conversation with my boy. It was really powerful. So it's changed us. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. You guys are coaching couples we are we love the alpha stuff out of england and they've got a marriage course so you get the alpha courses that are like 22 weeks long for evangelism and talking about the bible and jesus and the holy spirit we bumped into a marriage course of theirs seven weeks and we've taken about 130 couples through it the last three years Wow! and um i think the part that we like the most is just sitting down now with couples because we can see ourselves in a bunch of 30 40 and 50 year olds 
Women don't have dreams. I ask a lot of clients, hey, what's your wife dreaming about? And they're like, I don't know. And I can see that it's a point of contention. And so she does a lot of coaching with women, helping them dream. Mm. And sometimes that's then tied into why I'm not eating correctly or I'm not exercising or I'm not losing weight. But for her, it's the heart of the soul. And um, so, yeah, we do that. I, I really say yes to three things when it comes to mentorship or discipleship. I disciple my family. I'll help marriages and I'll help business leaders. Those are my yeses. So everything else outside that realm is usually a no. How do people get involved? Where is Acumen in the nation? How do people get involved in the Denver area yeah. and other areas that there are? On the front range, if you're a business owner, typically not built for solopreneurs, but it's business owners of about $2 million plus in revenue, 10 plus employees. We want to work for the business owner that's not in a business. And there's some amazing solopreneurs. I'm one of them. I don't qualify to be on my own team. So if you're on the front range and you're wanting a community that's going to help you 10x your business, but not lose your heart and soul and family in the process, but to do it with another crew of people that are committed to you. There's communities that are popping up. I've got CEOs and owners that are in Colorado Springs, Denver Metro, all the way up north in Fort Collins. We have a coach in Fort Collins. We're looking for coaches. We call them growth catalysts in Colorado Springs, Denver Metro. Because for me, the vision is not about me. The vision is, could we have 10 to 20 of these community groups, these little peer groups, acumen groups up and down the front range? And they're connected to each other. There are a lot of organizations in town now, but no one's connecting with each other. And I think we need a, a powerful marketplace kingdom force together. So you can go online and find them, acumenimpact.com. And we've got different, I've uh, got different happy hours. We have different leadership events. Yeah, normal stuff. Steve Endes, before we get to rapid fire questions, you mentioned that your son played football at CU. It's a kick in the pants now, isn't it? And he did tell me, he goes, when Dion got hired, he goes, dad, I wish, he goes, I'm sorry, my career didn't go the way. And he had offers all over the country. He was a four or five star kid, ESPN 200 kid. Really? Yeah. Really? Out of Cherry Creek High School. Yeah. He was, as an eighth grader, he was being recruited by Valor, Mullen, and Regis. The last second. Re recruited. Yes. In high school where you're not supposed to be recruited. Bingo. We'd have, <clears throat> we'd have people showing up at his middle school basketball games. Has yeah. John decided where he's going to high school? And it'd be guys from Mullen or Valor or whatever. And then the last second, he said, I want to play for Dave Logan at uh, Cherry Creek High School. Wow. And so he rolls in there. And, and for those that don't know that are outside of Colorado, Dave Logan is... 11 state championships. He had He's one of few players. Voice of the Broncos. Voice of the Broncos. Played in the NFL, Cleveland Browns. He is one of few people out of college that had an NBA contract in his hand, a Major League Baseball contract in his hand, and an NFL contract in his hand. It's a unique human. And so we played for him. John had a great career. He started varsity as a 14 year old, led the state in sacks his freshman year, had offers um, right after his freshman year. And then he went to go play he, after all those offers all around the country. He goes, dad, I still remember you praying for this campus up in Boulder and walking the hallways with you. He goes, that's where I'm going. I'm going to help make it great. And then surgeries and surgeries and surgeries and position change Outside linebacker, they moved him to inside, never played inside before. He was a little undersized for outside. He was 6'1". First year, torn ACL, but God used it. Third year, he finally was a starting position. We always celebrate CSU crushing the Rammies every year with his sack. He had a sack that caused a touchdown fumble. Had a great game, but then he tore three ligaments in his ankle. Oh, jeez. That year ended. Then COVID ha happened. That was hard. And I can just tell it's starting to wear on him. COVID really took it out of a lot of college players. Took the fun out of it. 
And then um, they sent him in. Uh, he finished five years. They wanted him to come back for six. He said no. I was really proud of him. And he finished his master's on their dime and uh, in the business school there. And he goes, I'm getting married. So he, he just got married. So here's the cool part. I meet my wife in Brazil. It's a big country. One of the biggest in the world. And uh, we meet in a city called Campinas, two hours outside of Sao Paulo in 1992. My son and his fiance, after her grandparents passed away here in the U.S., said, we're going to go get, she's half Brazilian. Her grandpa was a famous Brazilian missionary with navigators. Jim Peterson. They're gonna, we're going to have the wedding in Brazil. What city? 31 years later, my wife and I go back to the city we meet. Wow. It was God's little grace to say, oh. I'm glad you fought <laughs> through and I'm glad you you leaned on me. So this past March, we got to spend a week in Brazil and it was heaven seeing our kids get married. So yeah, he's doing great. He's retired. He's working in town at a roofing company, doing a great job. Neat kingdom company. Nice. Mm -hmm. Nice. I have two married kids. (laughs) Steve Vendis, let's get to rapid fire questions. Mm -hmm. Rapid fire. Fire. How's that stick treating you? It's good. Uh, a Cohiba. I don't know which Cohiba blend it is. My business partner and CEO of Acumen, Dan Cooper, when we inked a new partnership, he sent me a bunch. He sent me some 55-year anniversaries. Those were amazing. This is good, too. I don't know Cohiba World, but it's good. You said when you first tried cigars, right? Yeah. Switzer Sweets, drive-in theater, mm. 1986 as a sophomore. We probably smuggled beer into the drive-in theater in Southern California. But real cigars was during kind of the dark nights of the soul. You ever do pipe? I did. That's what I did mostly with students, hidden, because I wasn't sure if Christians were allowed to smoke. And But I would defile college students, and we'd go smoke in the mountains. <laughs> I teach them how to shoot shotguns. I take all these city kids out trap shooting, and we go smoke cigars, or pipes. Yeah. Do you prefer cigars or pipe? Cigars now. It's so much easier. Pipe looks cooler. And I think if I was smarter, I'd probably, I'm not, I'm not educated enough to be that smart to smoke a pipe. It's too mm-hmm. much work. Favorite cigar? Oliva Melania V. I'm just, just about a, finishing a box of those in my humidor. Yeah, just opened up one today. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? Probably that uh, Anniversario. It, I think online it says it's 300 bucks. Would I ever pay $300 for a cigar? No. And it was Okay. It was okay. Not worth $300. Yeah. Crazy. I've, I found most expensive cigars to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Best dollar for dollar cigar you get. Gosh, cigar page. The master blend. Really? Hmm. Where's your go-to place to get smokes? Cigar page. Or Smoking Cave in Houghton's Ranch. When, I'm, when I want to support my boys there, I'm a member yeah. there. Yeah. That's, where I'm, that's typically where I'm buying that's a cool yeah. little lounge. Sean that does an amazing job there. I've, I've, I met Justin Folk, who directed What is a Woman, mm-hmm. the Daily Wire film. I met him up there, and we had a cigar. And as we were just, we were just sitting in the regular, the, the, front the, room, yeah. the front room, and the guy was like, you guys are having a good conversation. Here, come on, go back. I think go great. back, go sitting back. And I was like, oh, if I lived in Highlands Ranch, I would definitely be a member. Yeah, so Derek initially, um, who were sitting in the lines and he met me there a couple years ago and he goes, here, use my key card for about two months. And then I was hooked. And so I had to buy membership. <laughs> What's your splurge cigar? You're celebrating something. What are you getting? Placentia Almafuerte, the Siglo two, I think it is, or Siglo, the dark one, the black label one. Yeah. 
I bought a box of those. Derek, I blame Derek for that as well. <laughs> so that first time I went to the smoking cave, that's what Derek gave me. Yeah. It is by far my favorite. And it's a spl- it's splurge for me. It's 23 bucks, but it's not my daily smoke. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? You know, I didn't drink for four and a half years. So in 2018, when we're going through the ringer in the mattress store, I wrote in my journal that year in January, five things. Walk with God. Not really a good smart goal, but I knew what I wanted. I wanted deeper trust. One was sell the mattress store, grow the pillow company. And two other things that I felt like the Lord said, cut sugar for a season. I wrote in my journal, cut alcohol for a season. I felt like I was processing both the stress of the business with those two things. It was October 13. I'm flying out to the Coliseum to watch my son play USC. We almost won that year. There's a lot of almost in his career. And I'm sitting there in the airplane that morning flying out to Southern California. And I look at my journal and going, I suck at my goals. And I said, I got to pick one. I'm walking with Jesus here. My pillow company's growing. I'm not going to sell the mattress store. And I go, sugar's like cocaine. There's no way. And I said, I'm going to stop drinking. But I did tailgate hard. I had a shot of Jack Daniels at halftime. And I stopped. Five days later, Thursday night, Christine goes, we're back in Colorado. Christine goes, hey, can you make me a margarita? Make her a margarita. And she goes, where's yours? I go, oh, I stopped drinking five days ago. <laughs> so a little bit of our differentiation. I forget to tell her things. And so f- four years in, every six months, it was only supposed to be for a season. I made it to January 1st, but I sense the Lord saying, no, go longer. Every six months, I would ask the Lord. I never felt released. At four years, I felt released. And Neil McKinnon and Alan and Derek and a bunch of us with Holy Smokes were going down to Cabo to golf and smoke cigars. It was a four-year mark, and it was the first time I I felt the Lord saying, it's okay. You're allowed to come back. And so I tell Neil, I go, Neil, I'm going to come down to Cabo, and I'm going to start, that's going to be my comeback drinking time. And he goes, no way. He goes, that's a horrible time to come back. You'll drink too much. And so I didn't. I used the wisdom of the wise sage, the 75-year-old Neil, who I think is, I I would call him a a soft mentor of mine. And so I waited, waited, kept praying. And Christmas Eve, a dear friend of mine invites me up to Evergreen for Christmas. And his sweet wife, kind wife, goes, hey, what would you like to drink? And it's wine and beer and eggnog and this. I said, is the eggnog alcohol? And she goes, yeah. And And kind of in an asshole way, I said, no, I don't drink. My wife looks at me. So I grab a water and go off. And on the drive down from Evergreen to our house, she goes, that was mean. And I realized there's another idol the Lord was stripping away. I'd taken a good thing not drinking and turned it into an idol. It was like, I've arrived. I haven't drank. And 4,000, I was counting days sometimes going, look at me. I'm not an alcoholic, but I was now wearing this badge of honor. Look at me. I accomplished something great. And the Lord just said, done. And so 28th of December, we go out for dinner to our favorite restaurants and dinner, L5. And she orders a glass of wine. And I ordered a Woodford Double Oak Reserve. And she looks at me. She goes, when did you start drinking? I go, right now. And she goes, you okay? I go, yeah. And so I just come back with a healthy, so liquid pairing is bourbon. I don't like wine. Don't like beer. I thought I liked tequila. Nope. It's bourbon. Long story to get that. Sorry. That was not right. That was good. No, that was good. (laughs) Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars. You are one of them. Your story is profound. And now your, your pursuit of health and wellness. Every time I listen to you and interact with you, you're one of the most interesting people I've met in the journey you've gone through and the recovery. It's profound. Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of characters, but you've got these niches that are just very interesting, mm. fascinating to me. 
<laughs> There's some of them, I, when I hear you talk about health and cold tubs and, and all these kind of things, I'm like, ooh, I want, to take, I want to be like you. Get your ass over to my house, man. We'll do a well, cold plunge together. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I'll, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes, it's well, going to happen. I, I won't be in the tub with you when you're in there. but <laughs> That would be, be the most interesting <laughs> cold tub I've ever had with anybody. <laughs> it is big enough. It's a 22 cubic foot chest freezer. That I converted. No, you so painted the vision for me. I started Googling it and stuff like that. So, yeah. Thank you. Most memorable cigar experience. My son's bachelor party in Brazil. Sitting by the pool at his oh. father-in-law's house in Brazil. And it's all dudes. And we're having fun. And cachaça is the uh, Brazilian drink there. And they hired a, the, a bunch of samba girls. So, I'm sitting on the edge smoking and all I saw was a girl in a thong dance in front of me and this big, loud Brazilian band. And my kids just laughed. And we just, it was just, <laughs> it was just the funniest thing in the world. That's awesome. Marvel or DC? My kids make me watch. Marvel is the one with all the, yeah. is that Tony, Tony, um, is that Iron Man? Yeah. Okay. You can tell how much I'm into it. Yeah. I prefer that one more. Did you, were you, so you weren't into superheroes as a kid? Mm-mm. Okay. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. I was, I still remember, was it 1976? First one, 77? 77. Yeah, so I was six years old. I still remember waiting in line at the Lakewood Mall Theater in Southern California and waiting an hour and a half. Trans- oh, I had all the little figures, everything. Sold them at a garage sale about 15 years ago. Oops. Nice. <laughs> Sports teams. See you buffs. Los Angeles Dodgers. Not the current Lakers. Broncos. I don't watch a lot of football on Sunday. I watch a lot of college football. And mostly, so we went to 50 games in five years. Last year, 2022, I didn't watch one single game. High school, college, or football, I fasted. It was the first time in 14 years I didn't have a kid playing football. I was tired. But now it's mostly CU football. Which is exciting up it there. It is fun. Going it is tomorrow. very exciting. Yeah. Going to see, you're, we're all going to know when this comes out, but we're playing USC. It's, yeah. it's fun. I'm going with my son and my wife. To now it's, I get to be a fan with my son. This is the first year I've gotten to be a fan with my son in, since he started being recruited because it's so serious then. Yeah. So almost 10 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's fun. I love Coach Prime. I love that it's, guy. It's, it's, there's something whole. He's probably, I mean, there's an energy in Bolt. I was there in February, so oh yeah, weeks after he was hired, and there was just an energy in Boulder that hadn't been there near my entire time that I've been here in Colorado. Yeah, I mean, it was almost like I imagined it was when Mac was coaching. Yes, and, and just to terms, just the overall yes. vibe and the feeling of the city, like there's excitement, like there's something we we got something really cool going on here, and the way in which Prime just acts and, and, and the way in which he interacts with his players and it's something truly special because when, yeah. when I, I had a, one, one of my college roommates transferred down to Jackson state and I remember Ooh. going down to Jackson state to uh, see him graduate. And so I've always kind of, yeah. you know, of, of those historically black colleges and universities, I, Jackson state was the one that I was gravitated towards. And as soon as, as soon as Dion was hired, I was like, this is going to be interesting to watch. And the more that I watched him, I, the more I fell in love with him as a coach. Because as a player, I detested the guy. Yeah. Arrogant, mm-hmm. 
all about himself, but clearly God got a hold of him at some point, whether it was late in his career or after he was done. There was, and, and, and I remember watching him as, as, a, as an analyst and just hearing the way he would talk. I'm like, okay, God's clearly done something in his life. And then to see that yeah. at Jackson State and now see it in Boulder, it's yeah. exciting. And my prayer is that, yeah, do I want him to win? Yeah, they're set up prime for next year. Uh, 12 team playoff team. Yeah, they're set up really good for next year. But I hope Boulder will not turn into a Boulder that doesn't accept a black, powerful man because he is transforming Boulder. And I hope he breaks down some racism divides because he is the man. It is for such a time as this. It's a Mordecai moment. Mm. Favorite athlete as a kid? Fernando Venezuela. I never played baseball. That's baseball. Howie Long, defensive end, because I loved uh, football. I had just too many injuries. But he, there's a word I think he always used, relentless. And I love the way Howie Long played. I loved those yeah. 80s Raiders. Man. Bo Jackson was my favorite, and Howie Long was number two. Mm-hmm. I remember when I played football, I'd just practice a rip move, which is what, like Howie's signature yes. move, the rip move. Yes. I just kept practicing and practicing and practicing and trying to get that down because I, yeah. Articulate, communicative, big yeah. old human. Yeah. He was fun to watch. I like defense. Lousy actor, but. Yes. <laughs> they all are. What kinds of music do you love? My soul needs rest. And so I spend a lot of time Christian worship. And there's my, my, all my family. I like country. I don't like today's country. I guess probably my favorite now is probably country from the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of worship. Favorite food. Gosh, we've got this this kick of all the Asians. My family, my, my, my 16-year-old says, Mom, not to offend you, we eat a lot of Mexican food. And I love Mexican. I love street tacos in Mexico City. The street taco game in Mexico City is off the charts. I, so six months after Elizabeth died, I got an Airbnb in Oceanside right on the water. And just to kind of heal my soul before a retreat that I went to. And because one of my editors is in Tijuana, yeah. I was like, I'm going to go across the border yes. and go to Tijuana. The best street taco I have ever had yeah. in my entire life. I was in line to come back into the States with all these other cars. And I, and I looked and I still had these flavors in my mouth mm-hmm. and I looked and there was a place to turn around. And I'm like, do I turn around and go back to that street taco stand and go get some more tacos and then come back? I need, I need to get back to the <laughs> so Airbnb. Good. It was that good. And I'm a big, I, I'm not afraid of the poisons. Uh, I eat street tacos in Mexico all the time. Yeah. And uh, growing up as a kid, my grandfather used to take me into Baja all the time. He was in charge of a bunch of orphanages. And so Baja tacos down in Ensenada and Rosarito and Tijuana, that's world-class. The street taco game in Mexico City is unlike anything you go to 9, 10 o'clock at night, and there's 50 people outside these stands. It's awesome. I remember on Netflix, I don't remember what it was. There was this documentary, and I think it was like episodic, and they were covering taco places around Mexico. And I was like, oh, my God, that looks so good. But here in the States, we're doing a lot of pho, noodle bowls, Korean, sushi. Yeah. We're playing that game as a family now. Nice. Have you... Or someone you deeply trust ever experienced something unusual, unexplainable, 
could be something spiritual. It could be UFOs are in the news. Probably the first time I was exposed to the supernatural, and I wish I'd dived into it more as a young kid. But in Brazil, we're showing the Jesus film in the villages. And I swear, as soon as we took our hands off the projector, two or three of us, and stopped praying, it stopped playing. Hmm. And then in our hotel, there was some serious dark spiritism going on. And I wish I'd dived in to the realness of God and the power of his spirit mm. at, at 21, 22 and continue that journey. Cause now it's a, it's a new fresh renewal of a, a real God moving and speaking and power, mm. but it, there was a 30 year gap in there. Oh, well, at least it came around at some mm-hmm. point. Dogs, cats, neither or both. I love cats. I'd love a nice. lion or a tiger. All my family is nice. allergic to cats. Oh. I grew up with a cat. Spike was my cat when we got married. Spike was killed. We are in the minority. We are in the minority of guys. I I love dogs too. Don't get me wrong. I love dogs. Like we've had some really good dogs over the years. But cats are just, and a good cat, a good cat, just those hunting instincts. And like, I I love Miller Moth season because when a Miller Moth gets in the house, the cats cats go crazy. My cat, Spike, used to, my roommates would torment him. And then finally he found that he could figure out how to get outside he would bring me mice on a regular basis. I have no cats as an adult. I have two chocolate labs. It's my third lab. I would love a cat. Too many of my family's allergic. Nickname growing up or in college? The only one I had was a, I played young. I played varsity football as a sophomore and we won state championship and I played a ton. They called me super soft. Super soft? Yeah. It's kind of lame. <laughs> I think it's pretty funny. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? Wow, that's a good one. I'm pretty open. Most people don't, when they see us on the surface, they don't know how bad our marriage was. Mm. And so it's an unusual fact because when people see us, they're like, oh, this couple's just figured it out. They're perfect. But they have no idea how how broken and and disaster it was. You're a reader? Mm Mm-hmm. Favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible? Undaunted Courage, Lewis and Clark. Ooh. Um, that was a really good one. And I loaned it to somebody and I have no idea where it's at because I want my boys to read it. That's one. Gosh, there's been some other powerful ones. And, um, wasn't codependent. Probably uh, <laughs> The Six Other Days by Paul Stevens that rewired my theology of work. Yeah, Hard read, but it, it rewired me. I just bought my kids. It's an older book. I just bought them all for Christmas, The Slight Edge. What's that? It's just personal habits, kind of daily personal habits. Mm. And um, I read it. It's really applicable. I told my kids, if you read a proverb a day and a chapter of this a day, it'll transform your leadership. That's cool. Only two of my kids have read it so far. My favorite kids. <laughs> Name three things you're thankful for at this point in your life. The cross. Man, the cross. I'm thankful for a, a redeemed marriage. Mm. I'm thankful for my four kids and my daughter-in-law's. I am thankful for second chances, this opportunity to, to start another career at 50 years old, beyond grateful. It's hard, but super grateful. Mm. If you could be any animal, what would you be? Lion. Big cat. Yep. I don't know if I'd want to kill a lot of people. I like the leadership, but I like the, there's a, there's a tenderness in the eyes. My wife has a gorgeous tattoo on her arm. She's a tattooed woman. She has this gorgeous nine and a half hour tattoo on her arm. 
And I can look at one. I like looking at her arms, but the eyes on her arm, they, the artist dialed it in mm. and it reminds me of God. Mm. Are you an early riser, a night owl or pretty normal? Early riser. I like being by myself for about an hour or two. If you could live anywhere, where would that be? Interesting enough, it's probably Spain. I said no, it's probably Spain. That, that's, that brings tears to my heart. That's the first time I probably said that. Mm. Yeah, it's probably the first time I said it. It's because we grow old. It's got soul. And I know it makes my wife come alive. Mm. Ooh, I got emotional. Yeah. Mm. It's beautiful. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? Oh, man, I'm hard on myself. Um, I'm a performer. I'm hard on myself. Greatest strength, I believe the cross can change anyone's life. Yeah. Who's been the greatest influence on your life? Three. Jim Plante, my youth pastor that I talked about. Michael Cusick, who did my intensive counseling. And David Donaldson, my 80-year-old counselor. Mm. I don't see him hardly. And they were just pockets, but by far the most transformational. They, they taught me the most about Jesus. All the ministry leaders, all the stuff in the world, those, but they all came in really dark or harder broken periods. Hmm. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? It's, I don't know. That's a, that's a good one. Um, Cause it, success for me is, it's defined as wholeness. There wasn't a first person because as soon as it goes there, it goes to wholeness and there's a peace and a stillness and a restful and there's joy and there's production as well. I don't know. Hmm. That's going to get journaled on. Mm -hmm. Check back in with me when you come up with that one. What do you do for self-care to rest, to recharge? I sit on the porch in the afternoon. Two years ago, my son (coughs) would come home from school. He goes, dad, will you stop the cancer sticks? And I'd smoke a cigar every afternoon to stop and slow. I wasn't drinking. And so it was just a time to process, journal, sit, look, stare, walk my dogs. And I said, Jacob, um, I go, that's really, it's getting hard on me when you keep saying that. And I said, I I threw the Charles Spurgeon quote down. If it's real or not, it might be made up, but he called them prayer sticks. And I said, just, it's my soul care. Every day I can stop and sit. Hmm. How do you want to be remembered? Um, that God smiles upon Steve. Mm. I want that wound from eight, nine, ten years old to completely be redeemed, that he actually just loves me. Mm. And so however people say him, like, oh, that's a guy that God loves. It has nothing to do with the externals, just because he, he, he loves my soul. He loves me. All the flaws and mistakes and quirks. Yeah. Last three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? It's changed my weekly. Everybody knows you, you're not going to, I don't work from 11 to three on Fridays. Some of my best friends have come out of Holy Smokes. Some of the greatest conversations. I like that our Castle Rock chapter is older. I'm 52, but they're almost all older than me. Yeah. I want age and wisdom and sage. It's changed me. I've heard so many different streams of faith and how they do church. It's so helped me. 
If you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. This is a hard one, but I, I thought about it because I knew it was coming. Jim Elliott. But I want to do it after he was martyred. Ooh. Because I want to know what he was thinking when the spear or whatever went through him. Yeah. And so in heaven, I still want to have that one with him. I think it, it's just a lay down his life. Uh, I think it's so redemptive. There's two business leaders, but I'm going to, it was one was Phil Knight and one was uh, Elon Musk, but I'd probably go Elon crazy maker, but just sees the world differently. Mm-hmm. I think I'd like to have a cigar with him afterwards. I don't know if I'd enjoy that time as much with him, but I still want to have it because mm-hmm. I think it might go sideways. I don't know. Yeah. And then the last one is Fidel Castro. Ooh. I watched that great little documentary, the cameraman in, in Cuba or something like that. And he tracked Cuba from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And he had all these conversations with Fidel. I, I want to know if Fidel saw the danger of the partnership with the Soviet Union, because then his country fell apart when they, the wall came down. But I would love to sit with him. And were you really bought into this idea, this, this communism piece, or was it just a financial piece? Yeah, I'd love to have that conversation. Hmm. I've always wanted to go to Cuba. I still do. If we're to meet one year from today, and I got a bottle of your favorite bourbon. What are we celebrating? There are at least four communities and coaches up and down the front range transforming business, men and women's lives. I think that would be a, a big one. Mm. Mm-hmm. Lives changed through the marketplace. Mm. Steve Endeast, appreciate you, brother. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Love you. This is awesome. Hey everyone, I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right, we have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list, as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Thanks.